Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. On today's episode, we've got on another brilliant guest. He is an author. He's a speaker. He's a coach. He does a lot of things. This is the one and only BJ Thompson. Welcome to the show. Man, thanks for having me. No doubt. Glad to have you on, BJ. We've been following each other online for a while, and I think it's long overdue that you came on the podcast. Absolutely. No, I'm excited about this. I think that there's going to be a lot of exchanges. I love watching your videos. It's so fun. I, I heard you were breaking records. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, you know, that, that was a while back, but you know, record breakers. So, you know, that's that's always great. <laughs> uh, did they send you, hold on, let me ask you, did they send you an actual award for that? Did they send you like a medal for it? Uh, no, it, it wasn't in a formal sanctioned competition. So, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's not it's not an official record, it's, a, it's yeah. an internet record, but um, yeah, I didn't I didn't actually enter a competition. That's funny, yes, sir. No doubt. Well, BJ, I know who you are, but for my listeners who are not familiar with you and your work, please introduce yourself. Yes, sir. So I am a motivational speaker, um, an author, a coach, um, originally from Dallas. Um, I am a Dallas native, not a cowboy fan or hater. Uh, my mother had me at the age of 17 years old. My father left school in the 10th grade, and I grew up in one of the toughest environments in Dallas. Um Shortly after, um, as I began to leave that environment, I realized that when you leave out of certain environments, tough environments, it's really hard to adapt to new life. Um, and you try to figure out what you're supposed to do in these next seasons of life. And what I recognized was that if you don't have the right tools and the right relationships and the right mindset, you end up getting stuck. And so a lot of my work over the last 23 years is helping people get unstuck. Um, in that process, um, I've traveled the world. I work with Fortune 500 companies. Also launched a movement um, with a good friend. You guys have probably heard of him, a friend named McCray. And we've impacted millions and millions of people around the world. And so I'm really excited to help people continue to get unstuck and help them find hope even when they begin to go into despair. That's awesome, man. I respect what you're doing. So tell me a little bit more about your childhood. What was it like growing up in Dallas? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, just a very, for me, I, I go back and look at my childhood and I thought it was normal, right? I thought it was normal to be sleeping on the floor because there's gunshots outside, right? I grew up in the height of gang activity um, in Dallas, Texas. I remember I was sharing, I share this in my book, um, Awaken a Better You. My first shootout was seven years old and we were just, you know, at this concert and then people, you know, got into an argument and it escalated into shots. And so I grew up around drug dealers. I grew up around gang members. I grew up around um, hardworking people. And so a lot of the environment that I knew 
was that it was very hard on the outside, but I had a very loving family on the inside. And so one of my greatest advantages, and I share this often with people, is that no matter where you live, no matter where you're from, if you have a loving family, it really can help you beat those odds. And that's honestly what I had. I had a very loving, strong, supportive family uh, where my mom and my dad loved me, uh, my sisters and my brothers. And we were a real unit despite having all of the very serious and significant challenges around us. I, I hear that. It's interesting. I, I hear When I hear about Dallas, I feel like going back a few decades ago, that's not a city that I used to hear that much about. Mm-hmm. I think that when people talk about the USA and I don't know whether it's the 80s or the 90s or whatever, people are always focused on the New York cities and yeah, yeah, Los yeah, yeah. Angeles, right? There, there are certain cities that you hear a lot about, but I feel like Dallas, despite being one of the biggest cities in the States, it's kind of flown mm-hmm. under the radar in that regard. So how much has the how much has the city changed from then till now? Oh, tremendously. You know, I believe Dallas flew under the radar simply because we didn't have any type of expressive or creative arts. Um, If you were not from the local area uh, or a Cowboys fan, right? Again, that's a big deal. Cowboys really brought a lot of attention to the city. It was really hard to discern what was happening there, right? But again, it was a major city. Millions of people lived there. And what I would say is the reason why... um, you, we didn't see a lot of um, growth or transformation because it was kind of locked in, right? So in Texas, you can drive through Texas and it's about a 24 to 28-hour drive, right? So you can go from one end of Texas to the other end of Texas and you're basically going to run into tons of small towns, tons of small cities, and you don't ever have to go anywhere. Um, I don't know that you grew up like this in, in the UK, but in Texas... Everything is big, right? So we talk about how big everything is. I remember growing up and we knew the Texas flower. We did the, we say the Pledge of Allegiance, but then we also say the Texas flag of allegiance. And so in a lot of ways, Texas becomes its own ecosystem. It it doesn't operate in conjunction with anything else. It's so segregated and isolated that it, it had not had any press. So Recently, what's happened with globalization, urbanization, um, people are now moving to these urban pockets from all over. And so you got people moving from New York. You have people moving from Los Angeles. You have people moving from Denver. Now they're all migrating to um, cities like Dallas that have a low cost of living, allow you to start to build and develop and start a family. And because of that, now you're starting to see more culture making in Dallas. And so I would say in the last 20 years, it's been a, this total shift to just having this unstirred community of people who live in a certain area where you know nothing about. You just heard, you know, maybe about a sports team, too. Now, all of a sudden, there's all types of arts, exchanges and commerce that's happening in the city simply because people are now populating there from different places around the world. I hear that. Yeah, because I've spent quite a bit of time in Dallas, actually. I think I've been there maybe six or seven times at this point. And it's interesting what you say about uh, Texas, because I think sometimes Texans and Americans in general lose sight of the scale of things. So, of course, I'm from the UK. Yes, sir. And the UK is four countries, right? Is it? Yeah. England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Wow. Right? But those four countries combined are much smaller than Texas. Got it. That's right. Right. So, so just a sense of scale 
when someone's talking about Texas, you're talking about an area that's bigger than the entire UK, um, which is a collection of countries. And then that's just one state out of 50. So oh, I yeah. think sometimes people, yeah, people lose track of the scale when you're talking about a 28 hour drive. I mean, if I, if I were to drive 28 hours, I could probably get to, man, if I were to drive 28 hours, <laughs> then, I'm, th- I'm thinking of where I could ridiculous. get. Zuma, you better say something ridiculous. Go ahead. Yo, I, I could get pretty close to Russia. Wow. I think I'd get pretty close to Russia. I'd, I, I'm sure I could get to, you know, like Poland. Yeah. Probably get to Poland in that time. You might actually be able to get to Russia. Yeah. 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 Wow. 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 <laughs> yeah, Sense of scale, hard. man. Yeah. Texas scale. So this is why Texas allegiance. So if you're from Dallas, you're from Houston, you're from San Antonio, you're from Austin, um, or even any small pockets in Dallas there. I mean, any small tech pockets in Texas, there's a significant level of pride from being there. Um, and you don't do not feel like you need anyone. Right. So, yeah. So that's what Dallas was like growing up. Um, but I still love my city, love my town. But it is absolutely its own place. Absolutely, man. So tell me more about the transition. So you lived in Dallas for until until what age? Uh, until 18. Until 18. Okay. And then is that, did you go to Atlanta after that or somewhere else? Yeah. So graduated from, um, went to, graduated high school in Dallas, moved an hour away to the University of North Texas and started undergrad there. Um, met tons of new friends. Uh, many of my friends now that I'm friends with over 20 some odd years, I met them in college, right? So people from completely different backgrounds, from Maryland, from Houston, from Denver, um, met them at a college campus. And when I got there, you know, you think that you know life, right? You you think you understand life because growing up, I'm the oldest of three, was always forced to have to understand quicker than everyone else, right? And I'll share with you the edginess of living in a city and living in a city where there's a lot of volatility. And so for me, I settled into the thought that, man, if I can figure this out, I can figure anything out. Well, I moved an hour away and I and I remember thinking nothing that I've learned so far translates, right? And so it, it kind of blew my mind to think that if you're conditioned in one environment, you notice because you travel, right? People think that their environment is the environment, right? You move a little bit outside of it and you start to, to recognize that maybe the things you know are not, they're not sufficient in another area. This really sent me into shock. And so this is when I learned that I needed to start changing a lot faster. I needed to start asking questions, building relationships, um, gaining skills. And so going to the going to undergrad school kind of brought me into the world without traveling the world. Right. Because I had never really traveled. I had just stayed in Texas. I had been stuck in Dallas. Right. Because, again, you landlocked. There's nothing around you. There's nothing but land. If you drive out, you're going to drive far out to El Paso, far out to Phoenix. I mean, it's literally a 24 hour drive that mindset of thinking because I live here and I'm from here, this is that all that exists. And the truth was all I had to do was get a little bit outside of it to realize there was more to the world. And so for me, the journey from to Atlanta wasn't necessarily a straight shot to Atlanta. 
it was this shock of realizing that my little world was just a little part of the world. And that if I didn't have the humility to learn other people's worlds, I was always going to be grasping for my little piece of the pie. And so that's really what set off a lot of the transitions for me. So I moved from Denton um, to Memphis for a couple of years. I spent nine years in Memphis and then I finally moved to Atlanta. And this is when I started to see, oh, there is the ability to have these strong black families and communities that are thriving academically, educationally, spiritually, and economically in a city. And that's the first time I'd ever seen that in the USA. I hear that, man. So tell me about the journey from Atlanta. So you get to Atlanta. When did you start the work that you're Good. now known for doing? Good. Yeah. You know, I think the the work of coaching others, I didn't know that I had a gift, the gift of development. Okay. Uh, this is a very shocking thing to discover your gift. You know, a lot of people will say, you can't know your passion or your purpose until you discover your pain. And it never really dawned on me what my pain was, because remember, I came from such a loving family. And it took me years to kind of put words to it, Zuby, but the words that came to my mind was, I feel like I've always had to work harder for progress than other people. And I couldn't figure out, like, why does it feel like I have to work harder? And then I went back into my story. Oh, my God. I had a mother who had me, was pregnant with me at 16, had me at 17 years old. I had a father who dropped out of, a t- out of the 10th grade, never went any further. And then I was expected to flourish in the world. And so this journey of, of having to self-actualize, to become this mature man without any real pathways, clear pathways, processes being spelled out, made it extremely difficult for me to have to grow up. And so it was in the in this journey of me learning things, I would share. So the first time I would share with someone, they would say, man, I have no idea how you got to this part of your journey, but I know that you know this. Can you teach me? I would write it down on a sheet of paper. I would say, this is what I think I'm doing. I would hand it to them. They would come back and they would say, oh, wow, this really worked for me. Like, I didn't know you knew how to do this. I did that about 10,000 times, Zuby. I realized that I had the gift of development. That was that was the thing that really become, began to resonate, um, was that I had this ability to see systems, processes, procedures, and pathways, and to give them in such a simplistic way that other people could follow. And so that's essentially how I became a coach. Mm-hmm. I became a coach because I just had to embrace the fact that, man, I do have pain. But I don't just have pain, I have purpose. And that this purpose has to be bottled up some way. It has to be bottled up in a product. It has to be bottled, bottled up in a podcast, the Build a Better Us podcast. It has to be bottled up in a book, right? Uh, Awaken a Better You. I'm bottling up this pain into purpose so that I can begin to better serve my neighbor and help people flourish wherever they are. I hear that. What was the experience that allowed you to coach all of these people and what sort of coaching specifically good was this good you know the experience i feel like it gradually grew i don't know if there was a one experience i mean when you have man i have any three years i've traveled the world 
I've spoken everywhere. Um, I don't know if there's, I've, I've coached more than 10,000 people. I don't know if there was a single experience. I think what happened was I just kept following the next step. And I think that for a lot of people, they're looking for the next big thing. I realized that it wasn't looking for the next big thing. It was just doing the next thing. And if you keep just doing the next thing, right, you get this inclination. Man, I feel burdened to write this course. I feel burdened to start this podcast. I feel burdened to begin to collaborate with other creators. What you look back on is that you in some ways have been building bricks or you've been putting together, you know, this this these woods. You look back and you see a boat. And you step back, right? You got to step back from yourself to say, oh, wow, look at this big boat. But the entire time, it's just been the next step, not the big thing. And so, so much of how I began to get to the place of purpose was starting to own the fact that I only needed to do the next thing. And if I could just keep following that quiet voice and and gaining expertise it would allow me to start to um, be more confident because I've done it before. This isn't my first rodeo, right? I got it in my past already. And I'm clear on my story, right? You know, a lot of people get imposter syndrome. And so once they start doing something new, they're very terrified and overwhelmed. And we are very fearful because we feel like we shouldn't be there. Well, my story says I should be here. Because I grew up in so much despair that I had to learn everything the hard way. And so as I teach people some of the more um, practical ways to get unstuck, I'm not being an imposter. I'm being myself. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that was the beginning of me learning what this meant. And the more of the more feedback I got, the more I started to see oh, this is changing the world. Like these little things that I'm thinking in, in terms of the next step is changing my world. What's your thing, Zub? A, a lot of thoughts, man. A lot of thoughts. I'm just listening listening to the story. There's a, <laughs> there's, there's a word you've used a lot of times and you've you've brought up the word unstuck many mm-hmm. times. So when, when you talk about people being stuck and unstuck, what exactly do you mean by that? Oh, you get to a place you're unfamiliar mm-hmm. with. And you feel like you don't have the tools, the capacity, the motivation to move forward. Uh, We did this in a pandemic, right? We do this in a new career. We do this in a new season of life that we finally own up to the fact that the pain of where we are is so excruciating um, that we want change, but we're not sure if we want to change. Mm -hmm. And so that stuck feeling is just the uncomfortableness of having to own that what you're doing isn't working anymore, right? Let me give you another revelation that I learned. Though I grew up around, you know, I grew up in the inner city and I knew that world, when I started to travel to other worlds, like the rural, the suburban, the educational, the boardroom, all these different worlds, I realized they were stuck as well. They had their own version of the ghetto, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, this is really my critique on a lot of these political um, parties and people who hold so tightly. I'm like, you you hold on to your own version of the ghetto, right? You think that the other person is poor, uneducated, (laughs) unwilling to learn. Your fixed mindset is keeping you from having the um, teachable uh, posture 
or mm -hmm. awareness to learn from people you differ with. And so this is, you know, really one of the reasons why you and I have been strong against cancel culture, right? Is that when you gain, when you begin to embrace cancel culture on any side, you begin to lose the balance of outside voices and perspectives that can allow you to flourish. And so many people get stuck because they go into the silo. They just own into the thing that they are. They feel like they're from private, you know, faith school. They feel like they're from the suburb. They feel like they're from this urban area or they're the woman or they're a man or whatever they are. And it begins to cause them to not be able to move to the next step. And so this is what I started to identify. We all feel like that. And we all feel like we're not enough at many times. And because we feel like we're not enough, it leads us to not move, even though it's time to go. Mm. That point you made there is actually is very interesting about people getting stuck in silos. I see I see that all the time. Um, you, it's very visible, particularly on social media, just because you've got these giant <laughs> these giant chambers of people. Yeah, people just you know ye yelling at each other across this sort of dig digital ether. And something that I, I notice is um, it's interesting because a, lo a lot of people say that they're open-minded, mm -hmm. but I think that true open-mindedness, just like I think true tolerance is actually pretty rare, mm. right? People like to say, I mean, what are some of the buzzwords right now in society? Diversity, inclusion, tolerance. Uh, a lot of people don't truly like these things. Like people right. don't actually, <laughs> people That's actually right. like, people like having their views reinforced perhaps by people who look different from them or who are visibly of a different demographic, but they like, in terms of the opinions and the beliefs, people, we all, we all like to hear our beliefs and our opinions repeated and reflected. That's right. Back, That's right? right. And actually most people are somewhat intolerant of someone who's coming from a totally different perspective or who's saying something they disagree with. The natural human reaction is actually to either insult them, distance right. yourself from them. Or even try to, yeah, try to try to shut them down, right? That's what cancel culture is. It's like, hey, we need we need to censor this guy. Like, I don't like what this person is saying. I disagree with this. We need to deplatform him, censor him. We need to get rid of that guy. We need to get rid of that gal, and so on. And it reinforces it reinforces that chamber. And I think it can be a tricky thing because I think also we'd all agree that there are some things that are beyond the pale, right? There are for sure, right? There <laughs> there are things that actually, you know what? We we shouldn't tolerate that, right? Okay, right. this. this this is going too far. So I think it's just tricky for people to know, okay, where do we, where do we draw those lines and those boundaries? Right. Cause mm -hmm. some people are like, oh, we should just have absolute, just com complete wild West. Like everyone just sure. does, everyone just says sure. whatever they want. We don't want the wild West. No, we don't. Want <laughs> yeah. That's like, actually that's, that that's wouldn't not, work. <laughs> no, no, yeah, no. That, that, wouldn't that, work. That doesn't, yeah. That doesn't work. We also don't want the opposite, right? You also don't want the, okay. Like, We've got this super narrow sliver of right. opinions that are allowed and tiny, tiny narrow behaviors that are allowed and anything outside of that, we're, we're going to crush you, right? Like that's not, that's not tolerated. So I, I think with human beings in general, especially on mass, people always struggle to find the balance, right? Every society, every culture, they struggle to find, okay, what's the right balance between what we could call conservatism and liberalism, mm -hmm. right? What's the right balance between tolerance and enforcement of rules mm -hmm. what's the right line between uh liberty and safety right how how do we how exactly do we balance these things and for every country every state every city every person 
those lines are different. And I think that's often where people clash. Yeah, you know, and what's interesting, even as you talk about, there is this, this thing that I'm right. And I think this is where we all go wrong. If you walk into a scenario, assuming that you're already right, you're already wrong. And it's because we do not allow ourselves to have a perspective, not the perspective. So I have a perspective on the world, right? You have a point of view on the world. I do not have the perspective. And this is where a lot of the tribalism is starting to grow, right? And you go like, man, this is actually kind of dangerous. And I love that, you know, I don't know if people notice it or not. People, people really cringe when we push back on our, what they think is our tribe, right? Because in their mind, we're one of their promoters, speakers, whatever. It's like they cringe because they don't know how to deal with a, a disagreement or a, 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 a refinement of what a certain point of view is. Mm-hmm. Because everything, it has to align. We have to all agree about all of these things. Therefore, we're not equal. And so I think a lot of it has to do with our sense of self-worth. And it has to do with a lot of our ability to have a posture of learning and listening. Right? So I now listen. I want to hear. I don't want to walk in thinking I already know it. I want to ask questions and I want to listen. I I tweeted something the other day and I said, the most prideful people I know ask zero questions. Mm -hmm. Right? They're going to come in and make all the assumptions they're going to ask any question. This is how you know pride. They don't cl- care. There's no need for clarity. There's no need for context. There's no need for history. There's no need for background. All they want to know is they want to be able to communicate what they communicate to you about you. The most humble people I know ask lots of questions, right? They want to get into it. They want to know more. They want to be informed. They're not afraid of changing their mind because they they would rather become a better human being than a right person. And so a lot of us have to work through that. But it's challenging because tech companies have organized an algorithm that favors what you like. So if you like the left and you. Our podcast today is sponsored by The Wellness Company. Did you know that nearly 90% of pharmaceuticals in the U.S. are produced overseas? That's an alarming statistic. If you don't have an emergency kit on hand, it's time to get prepared. The Wellness Company's medical emergency kit contains eight potentially life-saving medications that every single American should keep in stock. It comes with a 22-page instruction guide on safe medical use for everything from snake bites to COVID to bioterror events. Another stellar product from the Wellness Company is Spike Support. Whether you got vaxxed or not, the virus is still among us in some capacity, as well as the related spike protein. Spike protein can cause brain fog, tissue damage, blood clots, and more. Spike support is a detoxification powerhouse that aims to strengthen the body's natural immunity and flush out spike protein, so you can get back to that pre-COVID feeling. Get both of these products by going to twc.health forward slash Zuby and get 15% off with the discount code Zuby. That's twc.health forward slash Zuby and use discount code Zuby to get 15% off. Disclosure, the medical emergency kit is only available to U.S. residents. Like this, it's going to give you an algorithm 
full of those things. And now your everyday reality, now you're starting to, it's starting to shape your understanding of life and you think everything comes from the left. If you like the right, and again, and I don't, I'm not talking about political on any spectrum. If you like the right, anything you touch on that algorithm is going to show you more on the right. And it's going to continue to free these things. If you are pro-man, pro-one, whatever it is, it's going to feed these things. And you're going to start to assume that that is the way that it is. And I want to remind you that you have a perspective, not the perspective. And that the key to you becoming a flourishing human being is beginning to listen and learn from others, not assume that you already know. And when you do so, that deeper yearning to be closer and to be one with others will begin to be quenched in a way that you never could have imagined. Yeah, I hear that and agree. Absolutely, bro. Something I I try to live by and I always try to remember on a day-to-day basis is I genuinely hold the belief that I can learn something from everybody. Yeah. Right. I, cause I even get people now who are like, man, how do you, uh, you know, how do you maintain humility? Right. Oh, you know, you're starting to get a little bit of fame or, you know, success or you, oh, you got all these followers, whatever it is. And I'm like, man, I think I can learn something from everyone. Right. Who any person that I encounter in any country, any class, any background, whatever, if I'm willing to ask questions and I'm willing to just be quiet and listen and let people talk, even even those moments when I want to I want to jump in or I want to correct them. Right? Someone says something, I, I want to jump in and tell them, like, why they're wrong. <laughs> And you know, sometimes I still do, but like, but you you can, you can learn. Your energy, go ahead. Yeah, but but you can learn so much just by just listening, right? You can jump into Uber. Sometimes you go into Uber, and the, you know the drivers all the drivers all chatty, right? Like they, they've been by themselves all day. They just want someone to talk to, and they're just they're just ranting, right? They're just going on and on and on. And I'll I'll just sometimes just you know just sit there quietly. I won't even I won't tell them my opinion. I won't tell them my perspective, anything. I'm just sitting and I'm just I'm just listening and. I learn, I learn a lot from these things, especially yeah. as you travel the world, you're going to different cities and you just see how different people see the world. And I think at a minimum, what that does is it, it builds empathy. That's right. So that even if you don't share the perspective, you can get where people are coming from. And another thing that I've noticed, last point on this is um, I've actually noticed that sometimes being able to see and understand different perspectives actually annoys people who are hyper-tribal. <laughs> right. It, 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 it annoys them because they don't. If you again, like you said, if you think you have the perspective and no one else has a perspective or opinion that's worth hearing, then even someone else being able to be like, yeah, you know what? Like, I can see where I can see where they're coming from. Like people, people, people don't even like that. They want they don't want to understand and they don't want you to understand either. Mm-hmm. Right. They're just like, no, we, we can't even we can't even allow ourselves to see that perspective otherwise somehow we're being treasonous towards our group or mm-hmm. we're uh, or we're selling out or we're like you know if if i even uh, i think some people think that if you understand something it means you hold the position that's right that's right that's right you know we've talking a lot in the last few years about narcissism and narcissism in its very most basic sense is the inability to have empathy right? It's you have been conditioned from nurture nature to feel and to only comply to a parent, 
of authority figure with no emotions, right? When you do so and you begin to grow in the world where you're interconnected to 7 billion people, some things say eight. So, you know, we kind of go back and forth between yeah. 7, 8 billion people, it, it, right? It's eight, it's eight now. It's eight. It's now. eight. Okay. It's yeah. 8 billion people. When you lack, when you lack empathy, it allows you to participate in tyranny. And so what I what I want to warn the listener is that when we start to joke callously about the other side, right? I hear heard, oh, burn them all, bomb them all, diss them all. What you what you don't know is you're losing your humanity in doing that, mm-hmm. right? Because what you're saying is anyone who differs from my POV, my point of view is an enemy, not my sister or my brother. Yes. Right? And so when Martin Luther King talked about that, he said, we'll either all work together as brothers and sisters or we'll perish together as fools. What he was trying to communicate communicate was the interconnectedness of humanity that though you are different, remember I started out by talking about this specifically in my background. I thought I was so different because I grew up in this environment. Well, when I went into the next environment, the suburban and then the rural environment, it was really its own version of what I came out of. They were just different. And so I I think one of the reasons why I became such a powerful cross-cultural communicator was because I kept saying, you guys think you're so different, y'all really the same. You just hold to this, they hold to that, but at the end of the day, you all want to go home safe. You want to build something. You want to be able to have purpose. You want to belong somewhere. And you want to feel satisfied and fulfilled in your everyday relationships. And so we have to start humanizing each other more because if we don't, what we'll find is that there is the Roman syndrome. There's the internal collapse, right? I love to talk about America. You're like, man, this is like, I don't know if y'all see it because you guys are in it. Because, you know, I travel the world. So when I travel the world and I sit back and I'm able to finally pull back, I say, yo, we really are wilding. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is like, wow, like we're Rome. We're like, we're really wilding. Like, if you go across the world and you see it, it's actually like what we're doing is not the pinnacle. We're actually imploding on ourselves by having these wars with each other and losing empathy. And so we do not want to grow narcissistic personalities in our society because that leads to sociopaths as well. Right. We just had something recently in the news where an ex um, firearms handler in Maine committed a heinous act. And it's so it's so mind-numbing to believe how do we get there? Yeah, it's mental health, it's PTSD, but there's also a spiritual element that we fuel by feeding into narcissism. And so you and I have to be consistently aware when we're following into the echo chamber, we have no different opinions and you know you're in it when you don't think anything differently or you're not willing to stand on anything differently than the group. That's how you know you're losing empathy, that if my group does not affirm it, then then I cannot um, 
I can't agree with it. I can't see that point of view. And that means you just need to get some better friends. Yeah, um, absolutely. You've touched on so many interesting points. Another way you can very clearly tell when people are losing their humanity is when any types of any type of tragedy takes oh, place. Oh, come on, we've man. Had, we've, had, we've had several in the last few weeks. Something bad happens. There's a there's a mass shooting. There's a massacre. There's some war act. There's a terrorism act or whatever. And the immediate thing people jump to, the immediate thing they jump to is not sympathy, but it's either trying to politicize the situation and push an agenda right. or it's trying to use the act to now blame an entire demographic of people or the thing, right? Like, or, or even worse, perhaps even worse, um, saying that the victim, the victims deserved it. So they deserve it. They deserved it. So like, when I see that, I'm just like, man, you people are in darkness. Man, like, I'm, I'm like, this is not even, I consider myself team human. Yes, I have my social, cultural, and political sure. views. I'm, I'm pretty open sure. about them. But no matter how much I disagree with a person, no matter how much I might think they might be wrongheaded, they're doing what, if something bad happens, number one, I don't want anything bad to happen to them. But if something did, I'm not there like dunking on them. I'm like, man, like as a human to human, mm -hmm. I feel bad about this situation i don't i don't need to like your political views or be i don't even i don't need to be from the same country as you i don't need what whatever right we're we're all human and i think this is where um you know i know you're i know you're i know you're a, a christian as well right we're yeah. we're both believers and this is such a core part of our religion 100 which i think people people so often lose sight of 100%. Right, they put they put the others the other tribes go on top, right? Christian nationalism, but, uh, man. We got it, hey, it's, in America. I'm telling you, I used to be a part of this culture. We put the nation before our faith, and it shapes. It is shaped by capital, capitalism, and it's shaped by nationalism. And those things drown out the moralism and the the good posture that happens from having a pure religion. So, you know, one of the ways, and you, you know, I'm hyper on this. So I'm not only very invested in seeing people get unstuck, I'm also invested in helping the least of these, okay? You know, I found myself stuck in the echo chamber because I was in the group and you don't know, but they're taking you politically somewhere, left or right, they're gonna, they're gonna pull you. The group is going to pull you. They're going to pull you politically, left or right. And then it shapes your hope, right? Because now everything that is done in opposition to the group is a grievance. And so you have to raise your voice about the grievance. And then you have to villainize a person. You got to put a face to it, a name and a face to it, to where you stand against them. And when I found myself kind of wrestling at night about that and losing hope, one day I just felt the challenge from the divine. And I was like, there's something I'm missing. That I'm not a disparate person. And I'm not a person that thinks about these very dark, gloomy, us versus them. I've already seen war. I mean, again, people, they're pretending to be at war, Zuby. I've actually seen real war internally. I've seen real people die on both sides. I've seen it with my own eyes, right? And so what I said to myself probably about five years ago was, 
I need to get back to the basic things of just loving real people in real life, right? And, you know, so what it, what it led me to was I started thinking about people that could not fend for themselves like orphans, right? And very specifically orphans that you, because of some uh, situation outside of your control, you are without your mother and your father. And so I started partnering with orphanages to make sure those kids had food, clothes, shelter, education, water, and then the tools to self-actualize. And as I started working with these children and being with them, seeing their faces, knowing their names, and then helping them self-actualize, I noticed myself becoming less angry. And I noticed myself becoming more hopeful. And I started saying, wait, when Jesus says, go and care for the least of these, he's not saying it as a this kind of suggestive kind of deal. He's saying, for those of you who really want to tap into hope and humanity, go do something for somebody who can't give back to you. Right. And so what I would say, a lot of us have lost sight of that. And so what, what's in front of us is a political party. What's in front of us is the next election. What's in front of us is the opposite group. What's in front of us is what we think we know and how we look in front of people. What's not in front of us is doing the little things that help people offline that allow us to be more balanced online. And so what we did with uh, our program, we had a program called uh, BBU Cares, BBU Cares, C-A-R-E-S dot com. I said, you know what? I cannot be outraged all the time. I can't be exasperated all the time. I can't be in opposition all the time. I need to get my hope back and I need to start doing real things for real people to help them, knowing that they can't get back to me. And honestly, it's been one of the greatest joys in my life to sit with children and to talk to them about their dreams, their desires, their hopes, their aspirations, and then know that I, as an advocate, am helping support and change a child's actual life, right? So I think the way that we regain our humanity isn't just by kind of this intellectualizing balance, right? It's like we're trying to intellectualize balance. You got to do something. You got to go meet some folks. That's why I love your meetups, right? You got to go actually talk to some folks. You actually got to go do something with some real people to begin to regain your hope and regain your perspective. What you think? Yeah, bro. What you got? What you think? Man, no, I, I, dude, absolutely, man, absolutely. Um, I actually, I actually donated to the uh, Build a Better Us because I saw when you when you posted it, so I shared that with my audience as well. Because you're you're right. Look, we we constantly need we constantly need these reminders and pullbacks into reality because, well, number one, that's where real life is happening, but also because it's actually how we make a difference. That's right. I mean. I say this as someone, you know, like I'm, I don't consider myself like a, I'm definitely not a political commentator per se, but you know, I, I comment on social and cultural things out there via social media, via my podcast, sure. so on. Um, and it can very be, it can be easy for 
people to just get lo- completely lost in the online world. That's right. Right. Just just reacting and commenting and reacting and commenting. And I, I, I often take that step back and I'm just like, you know, there's some things like I have to speak on. Right. If I feel strongly about something or I see something like, whoa, that's totally out of order. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say something. But there's also things where, you know, both sides, quote unquote, do virtue signal. Right. People like this. People like to say that virtue signaling is just like a left wing or a progressive thing. And I'm like, conservatives virtue signal all the time. Right. All all the time. Like it's it's a constant thing. It's a it's a human thing to be like, hey, look, look, guys, look, I'm saying the right thing. Look, look at the hashtag I put in my bio. Look, I'm supporting this thing or whatever. But it's like, how are you really supporting? Mm -hmm. Right. How are you really supporting? It's interesting at this time. I'm, I'm I'm getting criticism every day on different platforms from i'm getting half half people saying hey how come you're not speaking up for palestine i'm getting another half saying hey how come you're not speaking up for israel how come you're not commenting and i'm like with all with all the noise out there on this subject with all the all the voices with all the back and forth with all fighting it's like what what am i gonna say what am i gonna just say that's going to make anything better if i say anything all that's going to happen is okay i've just opened it up now now both now both of you now all of you guys can can jump on me now 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 you're all now now you're all mad at me because you think i took the wrong side you took a wrong side in fact you you'd both be mad because i wouldn't really take a side beyond being on the side of innocent people like i Mm -hmm. that's my genuine my genuine stance it's like oh no no you need you need you need to have my opinion you need to you need to share this same with the russia ukraine stuff i i my feed's not full of russia ukraine stuff over the past year because i'm like well dude, this just, this just sucks. And I feel, I feel bad for the people caught in the crossroad. What I will do though is, is I, what, what I will do though, is if I, when I can, you know, I will go and I will donate some clothes or I will donate some money or I'll do, and, and, and I won't, I'm not going to, I won't, I won't broadcast it. Right. But it's funny. Cause you get these people, yeah, yeah they're yelling at you. They're yelling, and you need to do something. I'm like, well, what, what have you really done? That's it. Hey, right? yeah. you, you, do you see what I mean? Right. Like, that's it. Do me. I, I mean, listen, I, man, listen. I started checking the liberals and the conservatives when I said, all right, y'all so mad, let's go help real people. When I started hearing crickets, I said, oh my God, this is virtual signal. You never meant it. You were saying this life matters. <laughs> you, you're silly. He was like, every life matters. You were saying <laughs> all of this matters I'm so practical because I came from a practical background. I'm saying, oh, you say this person matters. Let's do something for that person. Crickets. When that dawned on me, oh, this is virtue signaling. You do not mean that. You're looking for a way to look good without doing good. And when you do that, you miss the deposit of the seed that births the fruit in the forest of hope in your life. And so one of my greatest challenges as a coach is not simply to help coach people through self-actualization, it's to help them participate in things that provide compassion for people. Clean water. So like with our kids, right? We have 28 kids. They all are in an orphanage. They have a, a, a well. The well came in, a group from Turkey came in and they dug a well because they said this is an orphanage. So there was no other well around there and they were um, drinking out of the swamp. 
So around the area, there's a swamp. So everybody has these big buckets and they go get water. And so everybody was drinking out of the swamp and they were purifying the water and then taking it back home to take the baths and do everything else. So when they dropped the clean water well, they quote unquote did a good job. The problem was they did a half done job. Instead of them using the drills that go down deep enough, right? To where the animal uh, byproducts and feces and everything else go in and seep into the um, the water, they they dug it with their hands and shovels. So now it looks like they have a clean water well in front of our center. The reality is it's actually contaminated because it wasn't dug deep enough. Uh. Right? <laughs> so <laughs> you see this? So it's like, oh, so so our children and not just our children, but the surrounding community who depend on clean drinking water have to now go to a a contaminated, non-contaminated well to get water and to hope that they don't get typhoid. And so what I'm saying is when you start to investigate suffering and you become a relief, what it does to you is it begins to birth in you hope. It says, this is not about me. I'm not the center of the world. And I think that maybe this is the greatest challenge that we're facing, right? This is narcissism, right? We think we are the center of the universe. We're simply one of 8 billion people passing through life. And if we could do a better job of doing practical acts of compassion, listening to others, trying to alleviate human suffering, we'd be more hopeful. We'd be more joyful. We'd be more cheerful despite tragedy. And this is the thing I think all of the people we want to bring them to is the deliverable is, yo, you're sad all the time because you're consuming all the negative things and you're not doing anything good. When you start doing good, you stop being so characterized by the woe is me, this conflict, this shooting, this is that. Yes, those things are hard and they are real. But they're being overshadowed because you're not participating in the work. And so a lot of us are having this thing. We're having a cultural moment where we believe that all we have to do is simply express ourselves and our point of view and not do something for another human being. And I would just I would challenge anyone listening who's saying, man, I feel like I'm in balance. Go do something. It doesn't have to be bbucares.com. Go work at the local shelter. Go pack up some bags with toiletries, with uh, bottles of water, with uh, maybe MREs. Go actually pass them out to the homeless folks. Go stand in. Put yourself on the um, St. Jude has like the volunteer list for kids with cancer. Go volunteer. Go actually be with the kids with cancer and go be a part of their recovery process. Go be with the people who have special needs. You can easily get into these places with people who are autistic, people who have schizophrenia, people who have these disabilities, and you can simply go be with them. Go be with the the elderly, right? We did a Christmas program one year where we showed up and we sang carols to 90, 80-year-olds. Go do something good for somebody who cannot give back to you. 
and watch how it radically transforms who you are, how you hope, and how you see the future. Absolutely. BJ, we could go on, but I feel like that is a, that's a very strong message to close this out on. Where can people find and follow you online? Yep, they can follow me on Twitter at BJ116. Um, they can also check out my new book, Awaken a Better You, here. Mm-hmm. You can, is available tell everywhere. Us, yeah, t- tell us tell us a little bit about the book, man. What's it about? So the book, Awaken a Better You, is simply how to get unstuck. And I share my four secret steps for anybody to get unstuck in any season of life. Um, I talk about my journey. But I also give a clear, concise, and compelling outline of how a person can take these things, read them, apply them, and completely transform their life. And so it's available at Target, Walmart, Barnes & Nobles. Um, It's also on Audible, wherever books are sold. So make sure you pick up a copy. Pick up 100 copies with yourself and your friends. Um, And so, and the last thing is bbucares.com. One of the things, again, one of the things dear to my heart and it's really changed my life over the last four years is getting involved with children in the least of these. And and I think one of the things I want to do for the rest of my life is serve kids. Mm. Whether I'm coaching, I'm writing books, I'm speaking, I want to travel the world meeting children and helping relieve their suffering and setting them on a tone of success and trajectory. So, bbu.com um, and you can check out a little bit more about what I do um, with the orphan and how we help to empower them for self-actualization and transformation. Awesome, man. BJ, thanks for coming on the show, bro. I love thank what you're you doing. So Massive respect. Keep up the good work and we'll talk again soon. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.